uh, people don't realize it, but you know, one of the things that you're going to find is this, is that, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of preachers that preach topical sermons, or they just, you know, they just jump all over the Bible, they just sit down at their office, I guess, on Monday morning, and maybe say a little prayer, Lord, what is it you would have me preach on next Sunday, and, you know, so they get some idea, uh, and so they go to that particular passage, and and all of that. Uh, but that was not the practice even of the Protestant pastors in the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, they were guys that preached through books. Luther did it. Calvin did it. The commentaries that we have from these guys are their sermon notes, their study notes from preparing those particular sermons. Some people wonder why you would do something like that when there's so many things you can pick from, choose from, from the Bible as, as particular sermon topics. Uh, but I chose to do it a long time ago for one of the reasons, uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is to protect me from you, or to protect you from me, rather. That I would not be standing before you every Sunday morning and presenting my a personal agenda to you, what I thought you needed to hear based upon what I've seen going on and, and that sort of thing. What you would find is this, is I would imagine there's a large percentage of pastors in their whole pastoral ministry that never broach Romans 8 and Romans 9. They avoid it like the plague because there's a lot of other stuff in the Bible that you can preach from. There's never a problem of finding material. There's always something, and so it's very easy to avoid the very most difficult passages in Scripture. And I would rank Romans 8 and 9 up there. The reason I do things the way that I do is to protect you from me and to force me to preach things to you that I normally would not do. Difficult things. But, very, very precious things. We are in Romans 9 this morning. And we're going to be picking up in verse 19. I know we've kind of covered some of this already, but let me tell you something. <laughs> it's not a stretch for me to tell you this. I could maybe spend the rest of my whole preaching career preaching on nothing but Romans 8 and 9. That's how rich and how deep all this stuff is. And that would, that would be true for just about any scripture you can possibly imagine. The word of God is deep. And the deeper you go, the deeper you find it to be. Uh, and I just want to encourage all of you to be great students of the word. And that means dealing with things that may be difficult for you to do. Uh, one of the reasons I think it's important for us to be students of the Word, just as believers, is, is that we would feed on the Word of God regularly. And, and let me just tell you, I hope you're not one of those people who has the particular passages in the Scripture that you go to all the time and you forget about all the rest of it. We need to be methodically studying through the Word of God over and over and over again, reading all of it, read, studying all of it, not just hitting on our most favorite and special passages that give us those warm and fuzzy and, 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 and wonderful feelings of comfort. We need to be stretched. We need to be challenged. In Romans 8 and 9, if they don't challenge you and stretch you, I don't know what is possibly going to do that. But Paul had... Uh, 
You just, you just love the wisdom of Paul as he's gone through writing this letter to the Romans. He's understood this. The things he's teaching are difficult. And he knows because that is true, there are going to be questions that people have, or there are going to be wrongful conclusions sometimes that people will come to in regard to what Paul has just written. You see him over and over again anticipating questions that he knows are going to rise up in the minds of the people reading in regard to what he has just said. This has been building all the way since the very beginning of the book of Romans. Just remember this. It's, all, it's, all, it's, a, it's a unit. You can't understand chapter 9 without understanding chapter 1. And vice versa. But, he has recently said... Things like Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated back in 9.13. He is used in 17 Pharaoh as an example of someone that God raised up to demonstrate his power through. And if you're more familiar with the passages that deal with Pharaoh, some of them say that he hardened his own heart. Other times it just says his heart was hardened. And then sometimes it says that God hardened his heart. And Paul says this. This is that phrase that he knows is going to raise up in the minds of people questions and wrong conclusions. Verse 18, he says, So then he, who is God, has mercy on whom he, God, desires, and he, God, hardens whom he desires. That very verse grates against the fallen human sinful nature. Now the amazing thing about it is this. In verse 19 he says, you will say then, why does he find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, isn't God really the one to blame for all of this? If he hardens someone's heart, doesn't that make him culpable in what they do? In other words, doesn't that sound like God sinned? That God has done something grossly immoral? There are all kinds of ways of dealing with that, and one of those is this, is we understand this. And we talked a lot about this through the book of Romans, and that is that God has been restraining sin corporately and individually since the Garden of Eden. And if he had not done that, we never would have made it out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve would have murdered. One would have murdered the other one, and then the other one would have died. That would have been the end of the story. But just remember, God hates sin, and God has been restraining sin, the, man, the sin of mankind in general since the very beginning. We sit on the, 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 the end of a lot of history, and the history is very often we use wars as particular points in history to kind of navigate through history with. They've been so numerous and so abundant. All products of the sinfulness of mankind, every one of them. 
there's enough sin left in us, even those who have been converted. Just remember, Paul has been teaching this. Remember all the things he said in, in Romans 7. We've talked about this over and over again in our study, and that is that there's still a vestige of sin, even even the greatest of believers, those who have seemed to have super-duper faith above and beyond everyone else, they still have sin at work in them. God is restraining sin in you. I hope no man in this room has the idea, I could never do that. Don't, please don't ever let that come out of your mouth. Please do not ever think that so-and-so is a far worse person than you are. Because you are incapable in your own minds, in your own thoughts, of doing what so-and-so did. I could never do that. Do you understand you're setting yourself up for a great fall? That when you get high and mighty and prideful like that, there's a very good chance God. God is going to let loose of the ropes just a little bit, the reins just a little bit, and let you see exactly what you really are capable of doing. Remember, we have all sinned and all fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us. No exceptions. The only difference between a believer and unbeliever is our sins have been forgiven completely, absolutely. Past sins, present sins, future sins. All taken care of by Christ. That's the only thing that sets us apart from other people. But he says this in verse 18. He has mercy on whom he desires. In other words, it's all according to his will. It's all being played out perfectly according to what he's determined, predetermined. I'll say that. Uh... He hardens whom he desires. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Paul does not answer that question. Literally. What he does is he turns it back on the people that would be coming to such conclusions. Which in a sense would be everybody. I mean, when you read that, when you, when, when maybe the first time you ever heard that verse, didn't it sound kind of like God was the bad guy? See, that is a measure of how fallen we are in sin, that we want to find a scapegoat every time, and ultimately the scapegoat, we think the ultimate scapegoat is God. It's not my fault. We can just blame it on him. Because he could have prevented it. He didn't do that, so there's a sense in which he's part of it. Let me tell you, please don't ever conclude things like that. God has never done anything wrong, ever, nor will he ever do anything wrong. He is the very definition of morality. Period. What Paul is addressing here is the ultimate and, and, and unbelievable level of the arrogance of sinners. That rather than accepting responsibility for what they've done and what they haven't done, their solution to it very often is to blame it on God. It's his fault because he could have kept me from doing it. 
Do you understand how arrogant that is? For anyone to ever think about that? To think that? But it's a measure of the fallenness, the sinfulness of the human heart. That we can't accept blame for ourselves. We gotta, there's always got to be someone we, can, we have to blame everything else on. And in this case, we want to blame God for it. I mean, Paul says in verse 20, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, who do you think you are? Really? How can you be so arrogant that you would make God culpable for what you did? Period. See, it is a measurement of the, the, of the utter and absolute sinfulness of the human heart that we would make God the scapegoat for what we do. And I would imagine, and this is true for me, and I, and I would imagine I'm not all that much different than the rest of you, in that sometimes I kind of have that mindset. See, this is one of the things about being in glory. We're not quite there yet, but when we're in glory, you know what? We're going to understand all kinds of things that we don't understand right now. Our minds where they are, decrepit as they are, influenced by sin as they are, we just cannot grab hold of the greatness and the wonderfulness of the glory of God. One of these days, you and I will look back on things and think, how in the world could I have ever been that way? How could I have ever thought something like that? How could something like that have ever crossed my mind that I would try to blame God for something I did? Have you ever done any pot making? You know, understand that being a potter is one of the very oldest professions there is around. Verse 21. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What Paul is saying here, I'm just going to be blunt about this. Is this is, is, and he's, well, let's just read on. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand uh, for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and, and her who was not beloved, beloved, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
that the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. It is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth uh, had left to us a, prosper, a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled uh, Gomorrah. Notice here, Paul doesn't say this is what God did. He said, what if God even did this? With the thought being, even if he did this, who could even then bring a charge against him? Who could conclude that he had done something that was wrong or immoral in any way? When I was in college, I always wanted to take ceramics. Some people don't know this, but I have a little sense of artistic ability. I used to be able to draw pretty well and do things like that. Probably not anymore. You know, my hands are getting so shaky now. <laughs> this, that, and the other things don't look so well. But I always wanted to take ceramics. Uh, and I, then, I, then I knew someone that was, was majoring in, in art, and they worked it out so I could actually go to class one day and make a pot. So I finally got to do the potter's wheel. And it was pretty cool. And I was lousy at it. It takes a little bit more talent and gift than some people might think it does, and and all that. I wound up with this pot. It was, it was a precious pot to me because it was a pot that I actually fashioned and molded myself. But, so, you know, we took it to the, to the ceramics teacher and he's looking at it and he said, it's kind of thick, you know, and this, that, and the other. And I'm not sure it's going to fire very well and all these kinds of things. But he permitted it to be done. And, and so I wound up with this pot. It was one of my treasures for a long time. I'm not sure whatever happened to it, you know, uh, in the end. But, I mean, the whole message here is this, is God is the potter, and we're the clay, and he can make us into any pot that he wants to, and he doesn't have to explain it to us. He's the creator. He's the almighty. He's the all-powerful. Now, some of the most difficult passages, words in all of Scripture, are those that we've just read. What Paul is saying here is, what if God made certain people for the intended purpose of being able to cast them into hell for all of eternity? That's what it ultimately comes down to. In other words, knowing full well from the very beginning, that is what their end would be, be but creating them nonetheless. And if we understand that God is almighty, that is a sense of exactly what God did. I can see the looks on some of your faces right now. This sternness is beginning to build here. You're going, "Mm, I don't like that. I don't like the way that even sounds. It grates on me. But let me tell you, if you haven't, if you don't come to places in the Bible that grate on you, you haven't done much reading of it. But Paul's saying here, what if God did that? What if that is exactly what God did? Who would, even then, who would be you to question him? 
who would you be to determine what's right and what's wrong in the face of Almighty, perfect God? Understand what's going on here. Paul is really bringing out the degree of our fallenness, the degree of the sin that still lurks deep within us, that we would even now where we're at this morning say to ourselves, that makes it sound to me like God's done something immoral. God's done something wrong. But we have to keep things in context. Romans 8 and 9 do not stand as, as pillars all by themselves. They stand together in unity with the rest of Romans. And what Paul has said already is that all has sinned and fallen short of the glory and that the wages of sin is death. See, we have a tendency of looking at things backwards. What we should be rejoicing in this morning is this. Is even though that is what I have earned for myself, that is what I am fully and absolutely worthy of receiving and deserving of receiving. Eternal death. God, for his own reasons, from his perspective, knowing everything that he does, even though I was in cosmic rebellion against him, in thought, deed, and word, he chose to set me apart. He chose to love the unlovable. He chose to love the one who did not love him. And to do what was necessary to save that person from self-destruction. Understand, if, G if Jesus had not entered into the picture, that would have been all of it. God could have left everyone where they were. Fallen, condemned. But he didn't do that. One of the things Paul is alluding to here is this. You're really not going to like this. Is that one of the reasons God did what he did was this, is that it was to demonstrate his wrath. So that people would know that he's a wrathful God. In particular, so that we would know that he's a wrathful God. Christianity is different than every other religion in at least two ways. One of those is other religions. It's all about you doing. It's all about you making yourself right with God. And we all know that's just impossible for us to do that, that we need a Savior. That's what Christianity is screaming. You can't do it. You won't do it. It's impossible for you to do it. You have to have someone do it for you. The other thing is this, is Christianity is the only religion that teaches you can have a close-up, face-to-face, loving endearing relationship with the God who made you. 
Christianity is above everything else a, a religion of relationship. That you can really know this God. That you can love this God. And that you can experience the love of this God. It's funny how people get so upset about some of the things that we've been talking about this part in, in the book of Romans. And like I said, some people just avoid it rather than having to deal with it. They avoid it like the plague. Because that's not my God. My God would never do anything like that. My God is a God of love. And love only. You understand, a lot of this stuff's played out in the history of the world for a reason. Is that's because God wants us to understand the fullness and the completeness of his character. In other words, how in the world would we never know that God hates sin and God is a wrathful God if he didn't show us that in some way? At the same time, how is it possible God would ever show himself to be merciful and compassionate and loving if he did not express that? Again, we've all earned, we've all gained on our own God's wrath. Every one of us. No exception. God could have left all of us there. He would have been righteous and holy and moral to do that. But he wanted us to know that he's also a God of love and compassion and mercy. You know, when we talk about predestination and election, some, some people, church people today, and I'd say a good number of people in the church today either misunderstand it, misrepresent it, or they totally ignore it. Because they don't understand it. And let me tell you something. If you think you really understand all this stuff, then my hat's off to you. Let me tell you something. If you sit there this morning saying, you know what, I think God really got a good deal with me. I was this, yeah, yeah, I know I've done a few things kind of bad in the past and all that. But for the most part, I'm a really, really good person. I'm a great person. He got a good bargain with me. If that's you, you're in deep weeds. You're in trouble. Because you don't even know your own heart. You're ignoring it. You're excusing away your sin. Those bad thoughts you've had about other people this week, those bad things you've said about other people this week. The fact is we all desperately need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And without that Savior, we are fallen. We're lost. We will be cast into hell for all of eternity. Because we've sinned. We've committed heinous acts against God who made us. 
But people get all upset about this, but you don't hear people talking too much about being upset. The fact of the matter that God, from the very beginning, established this pattern of setting certain people apart from everybody else. It's all the way through the Bible. Remember Cain and Abel? Remember Cain killed Abel? God could have left it at that, but he didn't do that. He raised up another son named Seth, through which the intended promises that were to go to Abel would be passed on. You see it very early in the, in the book of Genesis. It's setting apart of a special people unto God. It's been going on through all of history. The promises passed on to Abraham and then to Jacob and to his sons. You can't get away from the Old Testament without understanding something very clearly. That is that God had a special purpose for Israel. He set Israel apart from everybody else. He chose Israel. He chose Abraham, who, by the way, was a pagan idol worshiper until God made himself known to him. Wasn't because he was this faithful, super duper guy that God saw this inkling of just greatness in that he didn't see in other people. Very often, God chooses the least likely people. Why does he do that? So he, he alone gets the glory for it. I mean, how many of you? have heard people say to you after you came to faith in Christ, boy, you're the last person I thought would ever become a believer. I've had people tell me that. But obviously, God had special purpose for, for, for Abraham and his descendants, in particular, uh, those of, of Jacob. And remember, Abraham had other descendants. He had another son, Ishmael, but he didn't get the promises. That God gave those special promises. To Isaac. Then remember Jacob had. Remember Jacob and Esau. We've already been through this. One of the examples that Paul has used here in this passage. And we want to think, well, God saw something special in, in Jacob that he didn't see in Esau, or God saw something special in Abraham that he didn't see in other people, uh, you know, and this, that, and the other. And the reality is that's not what is intended for us to glean from these passages. So these took these regular people who were like everybody else, and he made them into something different. And if he had not done that, then the history of the world would have been very short. Very short indeed. I think the church today, in a, in a sense, continues to make, uh, just to do something that's a disservice to the church. Very often we continue to make a distinction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It's one of the downsides of what is called dispensationalism as far as I'm concerned. It continues to make a clear distinction between 
Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Is, and how they can do that, I don't know. You'd have to rip Ephesians chapter 2 out of your Bible and forget that, that it's there to come to that conclusion because the emphasis there is no, no, no. There's no longer this, this distinct separate body. It is one body, Jew and Gentile believer under the same Lord, and that Lord is Jesus Christ. The promise has not been for the, the physical descendants of Abraham. The promise has been for the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Those who have the faith of Abraham in common with Abraham. They're the ones that have been set apart from all uh, of the beginning of the history of mankind. And that is where you happen to fit in. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or a Gentile. Please don't make distinctions. Those distinctions are gone. God says so. But again, the pattern, and, and, he, and he uses Old Testament scripture here to show it. That guy's not doing something brand spanking new here now. He's just what he's been doing all along. And if he hadn't have done that, you know what? He would have wound up with nobody. Not one single person. Not one single person that would, would know the greatness of his mercy, the greatness of his love, the greatness of his compassion, nor the greatness of his glory. Same thing in the book of Isaiah. You know, the, the, the concept of the remnant becomes very clear in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. That even within the larger body of Israel, God was setting apart a particular people for special use. Those who would be saved by Jesus Christ. remnant is all over the Old Testament that within the body of Israel at large he's setting apart a special particular group of people now let me tell you something I would imagine if some people heard what the things that you just heard me say they would be passing judgment on me That is not my God. God could not do that. God would not do that. That's unfair. But who are you, O oh man, to judge what is fair and what is not fair? I don't think any of us understands the stranglehold that sin still has even on our thought processes. Understand, it's the sinner in you that would say, isn't God really at fault here if that's what he did? Think back to the first time you read that particular verse. What did you think? How did it lay hold of your heart? Did you say, boy, that just sounds wonderful. That answers every question I've ever had. Is that the conclusion you came to? 
I think probably more than not, your response was, I can't believe anybody would believe that. Because that, that makes God unfair, and God can't be unfair. So we can't understand it for what it says. We have to manipulate it, we have to twist it, we have to bend it to, to make it sound comfortable and, and cozy to our sinful nature. Only a remnant will be saved. Now we've mentioned this, that uh, you know, the, the, one of the th- theology things we talk a lot about in the, in the New Testament is uh, the invisible church as opposed to the visible church. The visible church being the church as we see it. In other words, every person who, in, for whatever ground or for whatever reason or whatever has kind of made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, whether it's really reflected in their life or not. And there are people who believe that you're a believer if, you know, you were 10 years old and you, you made a profession of faith in Christ and, and, and you were baptized. You're a believer, even though you may have just completely forgot about that very soon on and just lived your life in every other, uh, other manner than that would be conducive to. There are a lot of people out there, if you see, even today in the United States, if you stop people on the street and you ask them what religion are you affiliated with, the vast majority of them, they're going to tell you Christianity. Jesus. Jesus died for me. But if you begin to probe with them, you'll begin to understand. They don't even understand the basic concept of what being a Christian is. Almost like if I was born in America, I'm a Christian. There were a lot of people who thought that almost for a long time. Not so much anymore. Things are changing. Things are becoming more secularized, and other religions are getting more of a, uh, you know, a hold in the, in the United States and that sort of thing. Sadly, there are a lot of people who believe they're going to heaven, and there's no ground for them to conclude it. None. Because you have to take all of Scripture, and that is this, is that when you truly are a believer, your life is different. It changes. You're not like everybody else. You're not perfect. Matter of fact, you're far from perfect. But you don't go with the flow. You don't behave like everybody else does. Understand that ultimately the remnant that's spoken about in Scripture is the true church, the invisible church. The church as God sees it, the church as Christ sees it, because they know when they look out upon the church who truly believes, and, and, and at the same time, all of those who claim to believe, but they really don't. I mean, we can fool other people. We fool other people all the time. But nobody fools God. He knows when when a profession of faith is legitimate and when it isn't. 
And he's even given us reasons to, to kind of test the water ourselves. There are people that you, you know that, that maybe have professed faith in Christ or they would tell you that are a believer, but you're looking at them going, really? I don't see that your life is much different than anybody else's. You seem to be living a very worldly life, a life just like the average person out on the street does, without any thought of what Christ would have you do. But again, one of the fears that pe people have in, in even teaching the things we're talking about here is that people would be prideful and all puffed up. God loves me and he doesn't love you. You're going to pay for all your sins, but I don't have to. Jesus paid for mine. You're very imperfect, but in the eyes of God, I am perfect. Let me tell you, these, these, this theology that we've been talking about, this Reformed theology, and I'm not ashamed to mention it as Reformed theology, this is what all Protestants believed in the beginning. The Protestants who don't believe it now have drifted away from Protestantism. They're practicing something less, something else. A watered-down version and they would probably stone me for if I, they heard me say that. Because they make passages like this say what they think they ought to say. In other words, they let their human nature, their sinful nature, determine for them what the meaning of this passage is. And their conclusion is this, is if anybody believes something like that, then they're just going to be puffed up and arrogant. Nanny, 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 God saved me and he didn't save you. He loves me, but he doesn't love you. Let me tell you, it should evoke everything in you other than that. It should make you the humblest of humble people that has ever breathed air. That God would love you, that God would choose you, that God would do everything he had to do to save you. Humility. Not false humility, real humility. Where grace is understood, grace flows forth. It's very, very different for a person to be able to sit and look at someone else since they look at that awful, terrible sin of what they did. Oh my goodness, I'm aghast. I would never do such a thing. And another thing for that person, look upon them and say, you know what, if it were not for God working in me, the Spirit of God moving in me, that would be me. That very thought is life transformational. It will change you like nothing else will. Do you really know the grace of God? That will be you.